to you. Perhaps you heard the one about the inflatable boy who goes to the inflatable school and sits at his inflatable desk. And the inflatable teacher comes and asks for his inflatable homework, which he blew off, pun intended, night before. And so the inflatable boy panics, and he runs out of the inflatable classroom and runs smack into the inflatable principal who asks him for his inflatable hall pass. The inflatable boy panics again, and he pulls out a pen, and he punctures the inflatable principal, realizing he's in big trouble now. He runs down the inflatable hallway and out the inflatable doors. Fearing he will have to face the consequences of his actions, he sticks the pen into the inflatable school before he leaves, and he runs down the inflatable street to his inflatable house and locks himself in his inflatable room. Eventually, the inflatable police arrive, and just as they're about to kick down the inflatable door, the boy panics, and he sticks himself with that pen. He awakens some time later in an inflatable hospital, and in front of him is his somewhat deflated inflatable principal. And shaking his deflated head, the principal says, Young man, you've let me down. You've let your school down. But most of all, you've let yourself down. Today we're in 1 Corinthians 4, where we learn of some saints who need to let the air out of their inflated opinions of themselves. Most of us are familiar with Romans 12 and verse 3, where the Apostle Paul pierces our pride with this. I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Our scriptures are littered with such reminders. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 3.34 says, God mocks proud mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. In the New Testament, there are many passages, but perhaps Philippians 2 says it most explicitly. Philippians 2 says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any uh, affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Being in full accord in one mind, here it is, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look out for your own interests, but of those of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see in our Lord Jesus the embodiment of the counterintuitive principle that deflation is the path to elevation. That deflation is the path elevation. Jesus didn't consider holding on to his rights. He became a servant. He died. He died ignominiously. And it was the path to glory, you see. Because the road 
to glory is paved with humility. And yet in our fallenness, we, we long for glory and we recoil at humility. Instead of glorifying God, instead of glorying in God as we were created, we, like Eve, are forever deceived and we want to be like God. And we want the glory to fall on us. And so we puff ourselves up. We try to climb the ladder of significance by, by stepping on our other brothers. We jockey and we jostle and we become haughty and hostile instead of loving and peaceable. And it ends up just like God's Word said it would. It ends up just like James 4 says it does. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your, your passions are at war with you, and, and you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? Now, friends, we've been going through the book of Corinthians. And in 16 chapters, one thing is clear. The Corinthians were absolutely infected with this virus. With, with the strident desire to elevate oneself, it led them to denigrate one another. It looked like this in the book, didn't it? My gifts are prized and yours are, are minimized. My favorite preacher is lionized and yours is demonized. I follow Paul, but you follow Apollos. Now, Paul had been writing for four chapters against this factionalism so prevalent in the Corinthian Christians. So here in verse 6 of chapter 4, he offers the antidote to the poison. And it's clearly given. The antidote is this. It's the title of our message today and, and again next Sunday. Christian, have you considered that deflation is the way to elevation? Christian, have you considered that deflation is the way to elevation? So turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can please use one of ours, the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. If you turn to page 1212, you should find 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You to speak to us through Scripture. We ask that you would work in our hearts, that we would revere that which you reveal, that we would obey that which you say, that we would love that which you love, and we would loathe that which you loathe. We pray, Lord, that you would shape us and fashion us, that you would renew our mind through the washing of the Word, that you would recalibrate us from how the world and the culture would have us that we might be a people belonging to you, that the scriptures would not just inform us, but they would transform us, that we would be a perfume in the room and not a stench in the trench to the world around us, that we might point them to the wonder and beauty of Jesus. May we see that deflation is the path to elevation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one over the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? 
And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but, but you are strong. Uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are. Like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, we'll be tackling this over two separate Sundays. Some of the verses we won't be able to get to till next Sunday. But I want you to notice that in verse 6, Paul introduces us to a Greek word that's going to come up five more times in 1 Corinthians. Now, in all the Bible, only the Apostle Paul ever uses this word. In fact, he uses it seven times in Scripture. In Colossians 2.18, he, uh, he warns the people uh, from following gospel aberrations. He writes, um, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, now here's the word, puffed up, without reason, by his sensuous mind. Now, all of the other usage, so there's that word, puffed up, all the other usages of this word, only used by Paul, are found in, in 1 Corinthians. And, and scholars have rightly noted that, that this frequent use of this very unique word tells us this must be one of the main problems there at Corinth. Now, that's saying something. Because Corinth is a church absolutely filled with problems, we've learned. And yet, this problem is at the root of all their other problems. And so it is a term to which we must come to terms. And the Greek word is, is phusio. Phusio. And it derives itself from the word that the Greeks would use for a bellows. Now, how many of you know what a bellows is? A few of you? Okay. Um, a bellows is that gizmo at grandma's house that sat by the fireplace. Uh, it was that two-handled, accordion-like doohickey. You, you remember that now? Um, it, if you squeeze the bellows together, a surge of wind comes out the metal tip at the end, and, and, and your fire is made hotter. Remember a bellows now? So, fusio, this, this word that derives from bellows, in time, it moved from the literal sense to a figurative sense, and the figurative sense was someone who became inflated, someone who puffed themselves up. In fact, that's exactly how it's translated in 1 Corinthians 8. We're told knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, our passage today has one central message, that this puffing up is the opposite of humility, and it is the epitome of arrogance. Four times in our epistle, the ESV is going to translate this word fusio as arrogant. In our next chapter, Paul says, some of you have become arrogant. Fusio. Uh, in the next verse, Paul says, some of you have become arrogant talkers, but God's servant should be marked by spiritual power, not 
arrogant talk. In chapter 5, Paul points out that instead of contrition at their condition in being so progressive that they tolerate what the pagans even denigrate, Paul says, and yet you are fusio, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. And in the midst of the tension, in the discussion of the contentious matter of spiritual gifts, later in the book, there's going to be two big chapters on spiritual gifts, right? There's 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And, and, and it's a subject that can divide people. And do you know what's between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14? It's 1 Corinthians 13. I thought you'd get that easier. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 13 is the Bible's most beautiful chapter on love. And as he talks about these hugely and hotly contentious issues of spiritual gifts, he stops and he puts a chapter on love to, to weave the contentious issue together. But in the midst of that beautiful chapter on love, he, he tells us what love's polar opposite is. Love's polar opposite is fusio. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not, for CO, arrogant. And this explains a lot, doesn't it? The Christians at Corinth were, were riven with their factions. They, they fought over distractions. And, and, and in it all, they were quite unloving and unchristlike in their interactions. Now, tracing this unholy fruit back to its unholy root is verse 6. And verse 6 urges that none of you be what? Be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So it brings us back to our title. Christian, have you considered that deflation is the path to elevation? The Holy Spirit makes this point a number of ways. The first point God wants us to consider is this. It's point one on your outlines if you open up your bulletin today. It is this. Consider the example of the selfless humility already seen in Paul and Apollos. Consider the example of the selfless humility already seen in Paul and Apollos. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I've applied all these things. That is, he's spoken about himself and Apollos in the previous passages. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Uh, the Corinthians were obsessed with personal status. And they sought to advance their personal status by riding on the coattails of people they thought were important. And they did that by riding on the coattails of their favorite preachers. And so some would say, I follow Paul, therefore I have status. And someone else would say, I follow Apollos, therefore I have status. But Paul wisely applied all these things to himself and Apollos, two of the chief names being bantered about, and he did it for our benefit, brothers, that none of us would become puffed up in favor of one against the other. Paul uses some of the most jarring imagery available in his century uh, to demonstrate that he and Apollos are not big wheel, big deals, but rather they were simple servants of Jesus. The people were elevating, and he's saying, whoa, whoa, that's not who we are. Um, first, he leans on agrarian imagery. He says, we, we're like the, the lowest slave of that day. 
those involved in the backbreaking work of the fields. The, the people that worked in, 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 the slaves that worked in the house had much more status than those who worked in the plantation, and those who did the lowest job on the plantation had the lowest status in the stead. And listen to how he describes himself. He, he and Apollos are like the plowboy and the water boy, the lowest of the low of the agrarian slaves. In chapter 3, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field, God's building. Now, in case you missed that example of humility, Paul shifts from the agricultural to, to the nautical. Instead of using a, a, the normal word for servant, which is diakonos, it's the most common New Testament word for a servant, it's the word he had just used in chapter 3 and verse 5. It's the word you'd expect him to use. He used a very unexpected word, a much rarer word. The word was huperetes. We talked about this a couple Sundays ago. A huperetes means a what? An under rower. An under rower. Um, the, the, the ancient Greek triremes had three sets of 60 rowers, and, and, and in time those became uh, uh, held by slaves, and the lowest slave on the ship was the one on the lowest deck who did the most work and got the least benefit. And so Paul's use of these words, they're, they're making them into superstars and celebrities, and, and, and Paul says, you know, we're water boys and we're we're, we're plowboys and we're, we're under rowers. He seems to be saying very clearly that Christian deflation is the path to elevation. Consider the example, Paul and Apollos. So I'm going to ask you a question. That's great. That's way back in the first century. How, how are you seeing yourself? Do you see yourself in a selfless way or in a self-centered way today? Put it another way. Is your general view of life me first? Very New Jersey way, right? Maybe New York. We'll give them a bad line. Me first. Or is it Jesus first, others second, and myself last? There, there's two different ways to look at life. Me first, Jesus first, others second, myself last. One of those ways is natural. It's also fallen. And, and craven, and it's going to lead to friction in your interactions. It's going to lead to contention within a congregation. But the other way, well, that way is supernatural. It, it's beautiful. It's the fruit of our yielding to the Holy Spirit residing within us, and the Bible promises that that way leads to love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, selfishness, or excuse me, uh, self-control. In our interactions, and it's going to lead to harmony and unity in our congregations. Now, in addition to considering the example of the, of the selfless humility seen in Paul and Apollos, we, the Bible wants us to also consider point two today, and it's this. Consider the scriptures, so you're considering the example of Paul and Apollos, but now consider the scriptures regarding what is wise and what is worldly. As you're living your life, are you considering the scriptures as to what is wise and what is worldly? Verse 6, 
He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, here it is, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, one in favor of the other. Now, that's a peculiar phrase, not to go beyond what is written. In Paul's writings, the term what is written always refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul has already highlighted five Old Testament scriptures in four previous citations, just in the short few chapters of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.19, Paul reminds us, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will destroy. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul writes, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, it is written, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the Bible says, it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and that they are futile. So, so what are those scriptures saying? They're saying the world's wisdom is foolishness. That, that our boasting ought to only be about Jesus and, and not about us. That God has prepared great things for us, but we're not the great things. God has prepared great things for us, but we're not the great thing. Now, that's a pretty big difference from how the little voice in our head from the world and the culture speaks to us, isn't it? Our world says the most important person in the world is the one you see in the mirror each day. Our culture says, step on whoever you must to grab whatever you can, whenever you can, especially if no one is looking. But the scripture says in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The scriptures say in Luke 12.15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The scriptures say in Matthew 19.19, 19, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, so either the world is right or God's word is right. And if there's any confusion, you ought to ask yourself, well, well which one is righteous? Because they both seem to be utilized. But which one is righteous? Uh, the world and its myriad of crooked offenses, or the Lord and the beauty of his glorious righteousness? Those are your options. The world says self-promote, because if you don't, the other guy is going to get all the attention. The scriptures say in Proverbs 27, 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth. And again, in Psalm 141.3, set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. Friends, let's consider the scriptures regarding what is wise and what is world. Which brings us to verse 7, which brings us to point 3 in our outline today. Consider the big three questions to see ourselves correctly. There are three basic questions the Bible will ask us this morning, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Three questions, very simple. The first one is this, who sees anything different in you? If Paul and Apollos 
are simply servants. Are we so different? How many of us think we're more useful to the kingdom of God than the Apostle Paul? Anybody want to? That's me. Okay. So if Paul and Apollos are but servants, why are we any different? Here's one. What about our Lord Jesus? Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, he was found in human form, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our Lord. Why would we be any different? Why would we be any different? Why would we not follow our Lord's example? Why would we not follow our Lord's command? You know what our Lord commanded us? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So why would we be any different? And it leads us to the second question. Hey, Christian, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that you haven't received? If you're beautiful, congratulations. (laughs) Who gave you the symmetry of your features? You know, they've scientifically said beauty is symmetry. If one of your eyes is like this, you're not going to be on the cover of Vogue, right? But if you've got the symmetry of beauty... Who fashioned that on your form and face and figure? If you're fit, it was God who put you here and not in some war zone so you can enjoy peace and have a run in the park. It's God who's given you a job so that you have enough income that you can afford your membership to Planet Fitness or whatever. If you're smart, it was God who gave you that brain. God allowed you to grow up in a setting where you could use that brain. You know, you could have been born in a setting, and many people have been, where it's an hour walk each day to go to a well that only gives murky water part of the year. And instead of going to school, they're going to get water. You went to a school that had textbooks that were free and relatively updated. You went to a school that had teachers that actually cared and tried to get you to learn whether or not you took advantage of that. But you can go to some parts of the world, you go there and the teacher tells you to cut grass because he's not going to teach today because he hasn't been paid in a while. If you're a great singer or a speaker or a leader, it's God who gave you those gifts and those opportunities for you to use them and hone them and refine them. So the question is, are you using those gifts for Jesus? Friend, if everything you have is a gift from God, That ought to make the thoughtful person humble and grateful. It should never make us haughty and arrogant. And yet somehow it does. We see that we have something someone else doesn't have, and we we get pretty impressed with ourselves. The Corinthian Christians, in their immaturity and carnality, they they evidence this arrogance, this pretense, this, this defiance. But Christ died for more than this, didn't he? He died for more than us to be arrogant and defiant and full of pretense. We ought to have an attitude of gratitude, and yet somehow in the press of our age that that lives to impress, we've lost one of the cardinal marks of being a Christian. You know what it is? Christ-like humility. One of the cardinal marks of being a Christian is Christ-like humility. You know, we used to sing hymns like this in church. I, I can't remember the last time I've ever heard it sung in any church. Not have I gotten but what I've received. Grace has bestowed it since I believed. 
Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Some of you are old enough to still remember when churches sang that. Been a while, though, isn't it? What changed? This brings us to our third question, letter C on our outlines. If you received it, why do you boast? If you received it from God, then, then why do you boast? Listen to verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Friends, in this instance, do you understand that the gift exalts the giver and not the recipient? God is so gracious that he's gifted you in so many wonderful ways. And that magnifies God. All you did was receive the gift. Everything I have, all that I am, I've received. As Paul will recall to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, just as we must consider the three big questions, so we, we must consider this last one here. Uh, consider carefully your eschatology. Consider carefully your eschatology. Uh, the Corinthian church had an eschatological problem in our passage. Uh, they put their already in front of their not yet. Uh, you see, uh, there's an already not yet tension in the Christian situation. In our position, this side of the full unfolding of God's drama of our redemption. The Bible teaches that we are already progressively sanctified, and yet we're not yet presently perfected. There's still areas in you and I that Christ is working on until we go to be with Him. But we're already... <laughs> positionally children of the King. And yet we're not yet presently ruling as co-heirs with the king. That's yet to come. And, and, and so what we see here is that the Corinthians have an over-realized eschatology. When you read this passage, look at verse 8. It's very confusing. You've got to pay attention here. And I don't want you to miss it. Verse 8, already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become king. And would that you might, so that we might share in the rule with you. Don't miss that verse. There's something going on there. There's something there in their heads. They think they've arrived. They're pretty sure of themselves. Already, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. Without us, the, the, the apostles and, and Apollos, you've become kings. And would that you did reign. He's not against the fact that Christians will reign. In fact, he doesn't say that's a wrong assumption. He says, I wish you were reigning so that we might reign with you. See, we're all going to go through this together, not apart. Paul knows that one day we will rule with Christ. We will reign with Christ. Jesus told us this in Matthew 5. He said the meek are going to what? Inherit the earth. Not heaven, going to inherit the earth. That we're going to have an ability to rule and reign over this world. Maybe it's a renewed world, a different world, a millennial world, but one day there's going to be ruling of the meek they're going to inherit the earth. That's a promise of Jesus. It's going to happen. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, so at the second coming, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Oh, so there's, there's a crown, there's a, there's a reigning and a ruling. 2 Timothy uh, 2.12 is true. The saying is trustworthy, the Bible says, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him, and if we endure, we will also reign. 
So Paul has no problem with the fact that Corinthians understand this future ruling and reigning with Jesus. He's just concerned that they think it's all now. They put their already in front of their not yet. Our time of reward and reign as Christians is coming, but it's not yet. Philippians 3.12, you might want to write it next to 1 Corinthians 4.8, Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Friends, our rule and reign is, is not just in eternity, it's also in the millennium. Revelation 20 speaks to both church-age saints and tribulation-age saints reigning and ruling on earth with Christ. Revelation 20 and verse 4 says this, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So so these are Christians, whether that's a church-age saint or a tribulation-age saint, uh, because they were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, so that would be tribulation-age saints, and who had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, and here it is, and they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. So there's a rule and reign in the millennium for Christians and for tribulation-age saints. But the Corinthians had an over-realized eschatology. They were confusing the order between already and not yet. It's like a bad televangelist. Have you watched a bad televangelist? That's most of them. They always promise riches now. Special rights as children of the king now. Ruling and reigning over everything and everyone with kingdom dominion authority now. And they're partially right. That is coming. And they're definitely wrong. Look around. Read the Bible. That now is often not now. The bad televangelist wants the glory, but he forgot the part about suffering. You never hear a televangelist tell you it's appointed unto you to believe in Christ and to suffer. The Bible tells you that. They never tell you that. Why do you think that is? Friends, Jesus knows the way. Jesus shows the way because Jesus is the way. So what was the way for Jesus? Hebrews 12.2 was true for Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of God. You see the order there? There There was humility and suffering before there was reigning and ruling and glory. Suffering came before glory. And so I want to ask you today, as you read 1 Corinthians 4, 8, and most saints read by it, and they don't really understand it, they move on, because it's, what's that mean? I want you to carefully consider your eschatology today. Suffering and serving always precede ruling and reigning. And any preacher who tells you otherwise is peddling a crossless, Christless, false gospel that may sell well but in the end it leads to hell. And that's the truth. Which is why we must, the Bible says, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. This is Jesus. He's saying there's a way to be saved. There's an easy way that most people will take. That's not the way. And there's a narrow way 
an exclusive way, the only way, and that will always be the way. And so I want to ask you again, in our culture that puffs us up, in an age where we need to be instantly famous, have you considered that deflation is the way to elevation, Christian? Have you bowed your knee to the king of glory that he might raise you up as a son or daughter? Turn with me to the word of God, to Romans 3.10. Romans 3.10 is on page 1196. It's to the left of Corinthians, page 1196. We're going to read a little section. Romans 3, starting at verse 10. These are the words of Paul, the words of Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction, there's a narrow way that leads to life. And Paul puts it this way, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. We're not going to be able to earn our way to eternity with the holy God. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one, that is ultimate good, that, that we do a good thing for the sole reason of, of glorifying God and not ourselves. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Does that not look like our world? People say things that hurt each other. We're wounded by each other. That's why we have phrases. Counselors have phrases. Hurt people. Hurt people. The way of peace they have not known. There is a way of peace. It's from the Prince of Peace. Do you know it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. They may fear consequences, but they don't fear God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. If you are trying to earn your way to salvation by being a good little boy or girl, the Bible says that's an impossible situation. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Rather, it's through the law that we see that we're sinners. You know, we can say, well, do not commit adultery. Okay, no problem. But then Jesus says, well, it means a little more than that, doesn't it? Don't lust in your heart. Do not murder. Well, I haven't killed anyone. Okay, well, do not want to kill that guy on the turnpike. That's a problem. You've been on the turnpike, right? That guy. The law doesn't cleanse us. The law reveals that we need cleansing. If my face is dirty and I don't know it, I don't do anything about it. But if I stand in front of a mirror, I see that, oh, I look disheveled, I should fix that. But I don't take the mirror off the wall and smash it into my face and rub the mirror in my face. That won't make me look better, will it? In theory, it won't make me look better. Soap makes you look better. The mirror just reveals. The law cannot save you. If you're trying to earn your way to God, you can't get there. But Jesus is the way to God, and he can get you there. So listen some more. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here it is, but now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, all the Bible point to this answer. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of the Bible has been pointing to Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace. You can't earn it, you can only receive it. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over the former sin. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so He might be just and the justifier. The guilty are punished. You can either pay your guilt yourself forever or you can let Christ pay your guilt and it's gone forever. As far as the east is from the west. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see what this passage keeps coming back to? What is it? Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. If that's true, my friends, look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, 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 by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the gospel. Friends, the proud look to their good works to save them. The saved look to Christ's work, and it saves them. The arrogant try to earn God's favor. The humble reach out in faith to Jesus, to the hem of the garment, and they are healed. They receive God's favor. The haughty strut about in their supposed righteousness. The humble bow reverently at the feet of Jesus. Our Lord told us a parable, and it was invaluable. It's found in Luke 18. I don't know if you've heard it, but if you haven't, I hope you listen in real well. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Two people went to church that day, if you'll put it in the modern parlance. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He was the, the goody two-shoes. He looked good. His, he was in a suit and tie. He drove a nice shiny car. He had a, tiny, a tidy family. Everything was good, so it seemed. And the other was a tax collector. And you've got to remember, the tax collectors were the ones who collaborated with the Roman oppressors who then took money from, they said the tax was a dollar, but I'm going to take two dollars so there's something for me. So they were crooked, they were corrupt, they were in league with, with everything that was bad. So there was a, a guy who looked good, and there's a guy who looked bad. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus in his, in his nice suit, and nice car with his nice kids, God, thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like that guy, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood far off from the altar of God. He was afraid to even approach it, very aware of his own sin. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, Jesus tells us. And he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Are you ready to humble yourself and look to Christ today? Are you ready to ask God to be merciful to you, a sinner? Are you ready to receive a Savior? If so, that means you're going to make Jesus Lord of your life. He's not heavenly fire insurance you tack on at the end. If so, with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to pray. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I know that many of you have heard about Jesus for many years. You've grown up hearing this. You've come to Calvary and heard this. You, you can quote the truths of Jesus, but you know, it's not how much scripture we know. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. But Jesus said, you must be born again. You know in your heart, have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I his? And if that's true, you will one day rule and reign with Christ. And your life can be radically reformed around Jesus. If you'd like to receive Christ, you can do it like this. I'm going to pray, and you just pray with me in the quietness of your heart. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that Jesus is your one and only Son. I believe that Jesus is fully God, and that he died for my sin. I ask that you would cleanse me, and that you would make me into your child. Give me a holy boldness for Jesus. Give me a victory that I've never experienced. Start changing the furniture in my house so that it aligns with that which is beautiful and brings you glory, that which is good and will help those around me. Make me the man or woman you designed me to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of our service, uh, Ron and, and uh, Wayne will be right up here by the piano. Maybe you have questions about Jesus. Maybe you want someone to pray for you. They'll be here at the end, and uh, I encourage you to chat with them.